Chapter Six, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Chronicle of Wolf by William Wood. Chapter Six, Part Two. Quebec, 1759. On June 6, Saunders and Wolfe sailed for Quebec with 141 ships. Wolfe's work in getting his army safely off being over, he sat down alone in his cabin to make his will. His first thought was for Catherine Lowther, his fiancée, who was to have her own miniature portrait, which he carried with him, set in jewels and given back to her. Ward, Howe, and Carleton were each remembered. He left all the residue of his estate to my good mother, his father having just died. More than a third of the whole will was taken up with providing for his servants. No wonder he was called the soldier's friend. There was a thrilling scene at Louisburg as regiment after regiment marched down to the shore with drums beating, bugles sounding, and colors flying. Each night after drinking the king's health, they had drunk another toast. British colors on every French fort, port, and garrison in North America. Now here they were, the pick of the army and navy, off with Wolfe to raise those colors over Quebec, the most important military point on the whole continent. On they sailed, all together till they reached the Saguenay, a hundred and twenty miles below Quebec. Here, on the afternoon of June 20th, the sun shone down on a sight such as the New World had never seen before, and has never seen again. The river narrows opposite the Saguenay, and is full of shoals and islands. So this was the last day the whole one hundred and forty-one vessels sailed together, and in their three divisions under those three ensigns, the red, white, and blue, which have made the British navy loved, feared, and famous round the seven seas. What a sight it was! Thousands and thousands of soldiers and sailors crowded those scores and scores of high-deck ships, while hundreds and hundreds of swelling sails gleamed white against the sun, across the twenty miles of blue St. Lawrence. Wolfe, however, was not there to see it. He had gone forward the day before. A dispatch boat had come down from Jurel to say that, in spite of his advance squadron, Bougainville, Montcalm's ablest brigadier, had slipped through with twenty-three ships from France, bringing out a few men and a good deal of ammunition, stores, and food. This gave Quebec some sorely needed help. Besides, Montcalm had found out Pitt's plan, and nobody knew where the only free French fleet was now. It had wintered in the West Indies, but had it sailed for France or the St. Lawrence? At the first streak of dawn, on the 23rd, Jurel's lookout, off Isle aux Cordes, reported many ships coming up the river under a press of sail. Could the French West Indian fleet have slipped in ahead of Saunders, as Bougainville had slipped in ahead of Jurel himself? There was a tense moment on board of Jurel's squadron and in Carleton's camp, in the pale, grey light of early morning, as the bugle sounded and the boatswains blew their whistles and roared their orders, and all hands came tumbling up from below and ran to battle-quarters with a rush of swift bare feet. But the incoming van-ship made the private British signal, and both sides knew that all was well. For a whole week the great fleet of one hundred and forty-one ships worked their way through the narrow channel between Isle aux Cordes 
and the north shore and then dared the dangers of the traverse below the island of orleans where the french had never passed more than one ship at a time and that only with the greatest caution the british went through quite easily without a single accident in two days the great captain cook had sounded and marked out the channel better than the french had in a hundred and fifty years and so thoroughly was his work done that the british officers could handle their vessels in these french waters better without than with the french pilots old captain killick took the good will through himself just next ahead of the richmond on board of which was wolfe the captured french pilot in the good will was sure she would be lost if she did not go slow and take more care but killick laughed at him and said damn me but i'll convince you an englishman can go where a frenchman daren't show his nose and he did on june twenty sixth wolfe arrived at the west end of the island of orleans in full view of quebec the twenty days voyage from louisbourg had ended and the twelve weeks siege had begun at this point we must take the map and never put it aside till the final battle is over a whole book could not possibly make wolfe's work plain to anyone without the map. But with the map we can easily follow every move in this, the greatest crisis in both Wolfe's career and Canada's history. What Wolfe saw and found out was enough to daunt any general. He had a very good army, but it was small. He could count up the help of a mighty fleet, but even British fleets cannot climb hills or make an enemy come down and fight. Montcalm, however, was weakened by many things the governor vaudreuil was a vain fussy and spiteful fool with power enough to thwart montcalm at every turn the intendant bijot was the greatest knave ever seen in canada and the head of a gang of official thieves who robbed the country and the wretched french canadians right and left the french army altogether numbered nearly seventeen thousand almost twice wolfe's own but the bulk of it was militia half-starved and badly armed. Both Vaudreuil and Bijot could and did interfere disastrously with the five different forces that should have been made into one army under Montcalm alone, the French regulars, the Canadian regulars, the Canadian militia, the French sailors ashore, and the Indians. Montcalm had one great advantage over Wolfe. He was not expected to fight or manoeuvre in the open field. His duty was not to drive Wolfe away, or even to keep Amherst out of Canada. All he had to do was to hold Quebec throughout the summer. The autumn would force the British fleet to leave for ice-free waters. Then, if Quebec could only be held, a change in the fortunes of war, or a treaty of peace, might still keep Canada in French hands. Wolfe had either to tempt Montcalm out of Quebec, or get into it himself, and he soon realized that he would have to do this with the help of Saunders alone for Amherst in the south was crawling forward towards Montreal so slowly that no aid from him could be expected. Montcalm's position certainly looked secure for the summer. His left flank was guarded by the Montmorency, a swift river that could be forded only by a few men at a time in a narrow place some miles up where the dense bush would give every chance to his Indians and Canadians. His centre was guarded by entrenchments running from the Montmorency to the St. Charles, six miles of ground, rising higher and higher towards Montmorency, all of it defended by the best troops and the bulk of the army, 
and none of it having an inch of cover for an enemy in front. The mouth of the St. Charles was blocked by booms and batteries. Quebec is a natural fortress, and above Quebec the high steep cliffs stretched for miles and miles. These cliffs could be climbed by a few men in several places, but nowhere by a whole army, if any defenders were there in force, and the British fleet could not land an army without being seen soon enough to draw plenty of defenders to the same spot. Forty miles above Quebec, the St. Lawrence Channel narrows to only a quarter of a mile, and the down current becomes very swift indeed. Above this channel was the small French fleet, which could stop a much larger one trying to get up, or could even block most of the fairway by sinking some of its own ships. Besides all these defences of man and nature, the French had floating batteries along the north shore. They also held the Levis Heights on the south shore, opposite Quebec, so that ships crowded with helpless infantry could not, without terrible risk, run through the intervening narrows barely a thousand yards wide. A gale blowing downstream was the first trouble for the British fleet. Many of the transports broke loose, and a good deal of damage was done to small vessels and boats. Next night a greater danger threatened, when the ebb tide, running five miles an hour, brought down seven French fireships, which suddenly burst into flames as they rounded the point of levee. There was a display of devil's fireworks, such as few men have ever seen or could imagine. Sizzling, crackling, and roaring, the blinding flames leaped into the jet-black sky lighting up the camps of both armies, where thousands of soldiers watched these engines of death sweep down on the fleet. Each of the seven ships was full of mines, blowing up and hurling shot and shell in all directions. The crowded mass of British vessels seemed doomed to destruction, but the first spurt of fire had hardly been noticed before the men in the guard-boats began to row to the rescue swinging the grappling hooks round at arm's length as if they were heaving the lead the blue jackets made the fireships fast the officers shouted give way and presently the whole infernal flotilla was safely stranded but it was a close thing and very hot work as one of the happy-go-lucky jack tars said with more force than grace when he called out to the boat beside him hello mate did you ever take hell in tow before Vaudreuil now made Montcalm, who was under his orders, withdraw the men from the Levis Heights, and thus abandon the whole of the south shore in front of Quebec. Wolfe, delighted, at once occupied the same place, with half his army and most of his guns. Then he seized the far side of the Montmorency, and made his main camp there, without, however, removing his hospitals and stores from his camp on the island of Orleans so he now had three camps, not divided, but joined together by the St. Lawrence, where the fleet could move about between them in spite of anything the French could do. He then marched up the Montmorency to the ford to try the French strength there, and to find out if he could cross the river, march down the open ground behind Montcalm, and attack him from the rear. But he was repulsed at the first attempt, and saw that he could do no better at a second. Meanwhile, his Levis batteries began a bombardment which lasted two months and reduced Quebec to ruins. Yet he seemed as far off as ever from capturing the city. Battering down the houses of Quebec brought him no nearer to his object, 
while Montcalm's main body still stood securely in its entrenchments down at Beauport. Wolfe now felt he must try something decisive, even if desperate, and he planned an attack by land and water on the French left. Both French and British were hard at work on July 31st. In the morning Wolfe sent one regiment marching up the Montmorency, as if to try the fords again, and another also in full view of the French, up along the St. Lawrence, from the Levis batteries, as if it were to be taken over by the ships to the north shore above Quebec. Meanwhile, Monckton's brigade was starting from the point of Levy in rowboats. The Centurion was sailing down to the mouth of the Montmorency. Two armed transports were being purposely run ashore on the beach at the top of the tide, and the Pembroke, Trent, Lowstoff, and Racehorse were taking up positions to cover the boats. The men of war and Wolfe's batteries at Montmorency then opened fire on the point he wished to attack, and both of them kept it up for eight hours from ten till six. All this time the Levy's batteries were doing their utmost against Quebec, but Montcalm was not to be deceived. He saw that Wolfe intended to storm the entrenchments at the point at which the cannon were firing, and he kept the best of his army ready to defend it. Wolfe and the Louisbourg Grenadiers were in the two armed transports when they grounded at ten o'clock. To his disgust and to Captain Cook's surprise, both vessels struck fast in the mud nearly half a mile from shore. This made the Grenadiers' muskets useless against the advanced French redoubt, which stood at high water mark and which overmatched the transports, both because of these had grounded in such a way that they could not bring their guns to bear in replay. The stranded vessels soon became a death-trap. Wolfe's cane was knocked out of his hand by a cannon-ball. Shells were bursting over the deck, smashing the masts to pieces, and sending splinters of wood and iron flying about among the helpless grenadiers and gunners. There was nothing to do but order the men back to the boats and wait. The tide was not low till four, the weather scorchingly hot. A thunderstorm was brewing. The redoubt could not be taken. The transports were a failure, and every move had to be made in full view of the watchful Montcalm, whose entrenchments at this point were on the top of a grassy hill nearly two hundred feet above the muddy beach. But Wolfe still thought he might succeed with the main attack at low tide, although he had not been able to prepare it at high tide. His Montmorency batteries seemed to be pitching their shells very thickly into the French, and his three brigades of infantry were all ready to act together at the right time. Accordingly, for the hottest hours of that scorching day, Montcalm's men grilled the boats while Townsend's and Murray's waited in camp. At four the tide was low, and Wolfe ordered the landing to begin. The tidal flats ran out much further than anyone had supposed. The heavy-laden boats struck on an outer ledge and had to be cleared, shoved off, refilled with soldiers, and brought round to another place. It was now nearly six o'clock, and both sides were eager for the fray. Townsend's and Murray's brigades had forded the mouth of the Montmorency and were marching along to support the attack, when suddenly and unexpectedly the grenadiers spoiled it all. Wolfe had ordered the Louisbourg grenadiers and the ten other grenadier companies of the army to form up and rush the redoubt. 
but what with the cheering of the sailors as they landed the rest of monckton's men and their own eagerness to come to close quarters at once the lewisburg men suddenly lost their heads and charged before everything was ready the rest followed them pell-mell and in less than five minutes the redoubt was swarming with excited grenadiers while the french who had held it were clambering up the grassy hill into the safer entrenchments the redoubt was certainly no place to stay in it had no shelter towards its rear and dozens of french cannon and thousands of french muskets were firing into it from the heights an immediate retirement was the only proper course but there was no holding the men now they broke into another mad charge straight at the hill and they reached it amid a storm of musket-balls and grape-shot the heavens joined in with a terrific storm of their own the rain burst in a perfect deluge and the hills became almost impossible to climb even if there had been no enemy pouring death showers of fire from the top when wolfe saw what was happening he immediately sent officers running after the grenadiers to make them come back from the redoubt and these officers now passed the word to retire at once this time the grenadiers all that were left of them obeyed their two mad rushes had not lasted a quarter of an hour yet nearly half of the thousand men they started with were lying dead or wounded on that fatal ground wolfe now saw that he was hopelessly beaten and that there was not a minute to lose in getting away the boats could take only monckton's men and the rising tide would soon cut off townsend's and murray's from their camp beyond the mouth of the montmorency the two stranded transports from which he had hoped so much that morning were set on fire and under cover of their smoke and of the curtain of torrential rain monckton's crestfallen men got into their boats once more townsend's and murray's brigades enraged at not being brought into action turned to march back by the way they had come so eagerly only an hour before they moved off in perfect order but as they left the battlefield they waved their hats in defiance at the jeering frenchmen challenging them to come down and fight it out with bayonets hand to hand many gallant deeds were done that afternoon but none more gallant than those of captain octolani and lieutenant peyton both grenadier officers in the royal americans octolani had just been wounded in a duel but he said his country's honour came before his own and sick and wounded as he was he spent those panting hours in the boats without a murmur and did all he could to form his men up under fire in the second charge he fell shot through the lungs with peyton beside him shot through the leg when wolfe called the grenadiers back a rescue party wanted to carry off both officers to save them from the scalping knife but octolani said he would never leave the field after such a defeat and peyton said he would never leave his captain presently a canadian regular came up with two indians grabbed octolani's watch sword and money and left the indians to finish him one of these savages clubbed him with a musket while the other shot him in the chest and dashed in with a scalping knife in the meantime peyton crawled on his hands and knees to a double-barreled musket and shot one indian dead but missed the other this savage now left octolani picked up a bayonet and rushed at peyton who drew his dagger a terrible life-and-death fight followed 
but peyton at last got a good point well driven home straight through the indian's heart a whole scalping party now appeared octrelawney was apparently dead and peyton was too exhausted to fight any more but at this very moment another british party came back for the rest of the wounded and carried peyton off to the boats then the indians came back to scalp octrelawney by this time however some french regulars had come down and one of them finding octrelawney still alive drove off the indians at the point of the bayonet secured help and carried him up the hill montcalm had him carefully taken into the general hospital where he was tenderly nursed by the nuns two days after he had been rescued a french officer came out for his clothes and other effects wolfe then sent in twenty guinea for his rescuer with the promise that in return for the kindness shown to octrelawney the general hospital would be specially protected if the british took quebec towards the end of august octrelawney died and both sides ceased firing while a french captain came out to report his death and return his effects this was by no means the only time the two enemies treated each other like friends a party of french ladies were among the prisoners brought into wolfe one day and they certainly had no cause to complain of him he gave them a dinner at which he charmed them all by telling them about his visit to paris the next morning he sent them into quebec with his aide-de-camp under a flag of truce another time the french officers sent him a kind of wine which was not to be had in the british camp and he sent them some not to be had in their own but the stern work of war went on and on though the weary month of august did not seem to bring victory any closer than disastrous july wolfe knew that september was to be the end of the campaign the now or never of his whole career and knowing this he set to work head and heart and soul on making the plan that brought him victory death and everlasting fame end of chapter six